So when Pastor Mike first asked me to preach this Sunday, and as we're going through the book of Luke, I didn't realize that when I said yes, I'd have the privilege of talking about money and hell. Two very happy topics, I'm sure. But uh, through talking about those things, uh, Jesus is actually giving a warning, uh, a warning on what to do here in this life. Um, he's directly addressing the Pharisees. Uh, so I hope by the time I'm done talking, it's more clear about the reversal and how Jesus flips not only the expectations uh, that the people of the day have, but also our expectations in, uh, in how the kingdom of God works uh, compared to what Jesus says and the reality in this culture and what we have to deal with. Uh, so last week, Pastor Mike talked about the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus knew that the Pharisees loved money. And in the same way for us, how we deal with money is like a gauge or like a thermometer of our hearts. Whether it's our lack of money or whether it's an abundance of money, our attitude, our integrity, our priorities, and even our worship shine through that as we steward what little or what much we have. Uh, the Pharisees of the day thought that riches and wealth was a sign of righteousness. If you had lots, you were in God's favor, they thought. But continually in Scripture, Jesus turns that mentality upside down. Currency in the kingdom of God isn't the same that the world holds in high status. Now, I'm kind of a visual person, and I love the way that the Lumo Project um, puts pictures, puts uh, drama to this. So, Gene, I think we have that video clip. just narrates the passage again. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. So there's something very unique about this parable that sets it apart from all the other parables that Jesus said. I think my mic is still on. We'll get to that as we talk about the characters a little bit more. But Jesus starts out this story describing the rich man, and he says he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, if you know much about dyes and clothing in those days, to get the color purple, they actually got it from sea snails by extracting the oils, and it was the color purple, so they have to do it little by little. And of course, you wouldn't waste that very expensive coloring on cheap clothing. You'd use it on the finest clothing. So the rich loved to flaunt their clothing, as usually the color purple was reserved for royalty. Remember later when the guards mocked Jesus, they wrapped him in a purple garment as they hurled insults and beat him? Jesus mentions that this rich man lived in luxury every day, referring to how he ate, and he ate very well. It was almost like every day was a celebration, a special occasion, but it became his normal. Then Jesus talks about the beggar named Lazarus. Now, this isn't the same Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead in the book of John, but it's a character in his story. Now, what makes this parable unique is that Jesus actually names one of the characters. There's no other parable that Jesus gives a name to one of the characters. It's a somewhat common name back then, but the fact that Jesus names one of the characters shouldn't go unnoticed. The name Lazarus literally means God has helped. Now, chronologically, Jesus does tell this parable, scholars figure, a few months before his friend Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. Either way, this beggar with the name meaning God has helped is very close, very nearby to the rich man. He was at the rich man's gate, so the rich man would have had to see him pretty often. 
probably walked past him. He couldn't have gone unnoticed. And it also says that Lazarus was covered in sores. Probably kind of like bed sores from not moving around. Probably sores from not bathing, maybe infections. And it says even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's almost like the dogs took care of this rich man, better than, or Lazarus, the beggar, better than the rich man did. Now, I know my dog. My dog is a lab, and labs eat anything. Whether they're laying on the ground, whether it's in a pile on the ground, or whether it's in the ditch. Uh, this morning was a good experience of that. My dog had various presents waiting for me to clean up. It was not a good morning. I know it's a gross picture, but the dogs take care of it. Um, I'm sure Lazarus' wounds were pretty gross. It's even sad that the dogs paid more attention to Lazarus than the rich man did. Jesus gives us such a huge, huge contrast in these two men. They're very different and at very different places in their life. So just as the Pharisees viewed riches as a sign that God was pleased with them, they would have also viewed Lazarus as being judged by God, as being poor and unclean by having wounds. Now, both had a very different life here on this earth. Now, I like how easily Jesus passes between talking about things here on this earth and talking about things beyond that in heaven and in hell. The contrast that he makes, um, it just shows the impact and how what we expect isn't always what's going to happen. Now, there's all sorts of movies, books, stories, uh, accounts that are written about people that have had death experiences, gone to heaven, had conversations with loved ones. And I hope those are encouraging things, things that direct you towards Jesus and knowing him more and living for him while we're here on this earth. But if we want to look at the authority of the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, we need to take him at his word and test things because he is the authority on those things. Heaven is a real place beyond what our minds can imagine. And in the same way, hell is a real place as well. So when people say that they will be cuddling their cats in heaven or their cat is waiting for them there, sorry, that's not the heaven that I read of. It's a place prepared for those that have their faith in Jesus. So if we want accurate information about the eternity after this life, Jesus and his word is the best source. Things that people say or experience about heaven and hell need to line up with his word. Jesus goes on to tell us that both these men had died and the rich or the blessed or righteous man, as he thought he was, finds himself in Hades or in hell. Well, this beggar Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, that would have blown his audience away. The rich man shouldn't have been in torment. That shouldn't be. It's not what they expected. And Lazarus the beggar shouldn't have been with Abraham. But Lazarus was in heaven because he believed Moses and the prophets. He made God his helper and trusted in him. He had no one else to turn to. Lazarus isn't in heaven simply to give him some sort of compensation for what he went through on earth. There's going to be many poor people in heaven, many homeless people in heaven. Just as in the same way, there's going to be rich people in heaven. We're going to be surprised on who's there and who's not. He didn't let his circumstances dictate his faith and obedience. So just like Lazarus was receiving his internal, eternal inheritance, 
the rich man was also reaping his reward in eternal suffering. Now remember for the Jewish people, and especially the Pharisees, Abraham was the father of the nations. He was the father of their faith. So to be at Abraham's side was the place for the beloved. And the Pharisees Pharisees thought that's where they all belonged. Now we shouldn't get distracted in this passage today about particulars about heaven and hell. That's not the point of this parable. When we're looking at this parable, the first question we need to ask is, what is Jesus saying to the original listeners? So in this case, we have to consider what he's saying to the Pharisees. Now, on the surface, it seems like Jesus is just addressing their love of money. No one knew the law and the prophets like the Pharisees did. To them, money bought influence and they thought power and comfort. But they didn't consider it a resource that God intended to share with those that were in need, even though Scripture taught them. They publicly gave in the synagogues to make a spectacle of themselves, but their hearts weren't in the right place. So Jesus is making a broader point about spiritual blindness here. So I want to look at five wrong assumptions that this rich man had. Five things that we can not only see flaws in the way he thought, but the way that we sometimes have flaws in the way we think at times. So this rich man wrongly assumed that Abraham was his father. As kindly and as fatherly as we see Abraham's response, Abraham was not the rich man's father. To be a child of Abraham is to be a child of God. All this rich man had going for him was just actually being related to Abraham. So maybe a heritage, but not a saving faith. He didn't have anything like the faith in God that Abraham had, and his actions sure didn't show it. Yes, Abraham addresses him as a son or as a child, depending on your translation, but this is more of a kind addressing. He's a physical descendant and not a spiritual descendant. Now, the rich man's actions or inactions show that he is not a follower of God. In the same way for us, just knowing there is a God isn't enough to make us a follower of God. Now, notice it also doesn't tell us anything in particular that this rich man did. There's no huge crime. There's no huge sin. He's just a rich guy who thought he'd get to heaven because of his lineage. Sometimes the world around us thinks that too. They might say, oh, he or she is a good person. They've never done anything wrong. That's enough. That's not. You may do many good things. You may think that you're a good person. And some people might say, oh, there's a special place for you in heaven. We're going through the book of James in our youth Bible study. And I love the way James puts it uh, in chapter 2. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then he goes on to talk about faith without deeds. Uh, Faith without deeds is useless in the same way deeds without faith is useless. We know that it's not enough just to be a good person. It's not enough just to go to church or rely on the faith of your parents or rely on the faith of your spouse. Having a relationship with Jesus is the only way. It's a way that goes beyond just having a belief in God and beyond just going through the motions of religion. This rich man also wrongly assumed that his status in life continued in the life to come. So even in his suffering and agony, the rich man's arrogance continued. Who does he think he is that he can ask Lazarus to enter hell and give him some relief? He's still assuming that Lazarus' place is lowly and his status is high. 
He's viewing things based on what they were here on earth. Sometimes in this life, we experience suffering, agony, and bluntly, we may even say that we're going through hell, even though nothing on earth can compare to that place. We must never think that suffering, agony, and grief here in this life means more suffering, agony, and grief in the life to come. That's not how God's kingdom works, and that's not what God has in store for those who love Him and know Him. Next, this rich man also wrongly assumed that the chasm between heaven and hell could be crossed. Jesus tells us clearly, it's eternity. Heaven is real and so is hell. Jesus talks about it often. I once heard a story about a man who was in a car accident. He was driving his car too fast and he uh, wrapped his car around a pole. Now this pole was uh, of a gas station. It was a Shell gas station sign. And uh, he knocked himself out. He woke up a little bit later, rubbed his eyes, and he looked up, and he had knocked the S off the sign. And so he looked up, and he saw hell open (laughs) 24-7. And then he saw the price of gas, probably. But uh, it's very sobering. I'm sure that woke him up. So whichever two places you end up after death, whether it's heaven or hell, your position there is fixed. Once you're in heaven, you're there forever. Once you're in hell, you're there forever. This is why the choices that we make in this life determine our eternity. Once we die, there are no second chances. Again, Jesus isn't giving this parable to develop our theology on heaven and hell, but as a warning how to live this life here and now. This rich man also wrongly assumed that some people are entitled to special treatment. Verse 27, he says, uh, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. At first, it almost seems like the rich man is showing compassion, but that's not entirely true. His heart is still only concerned for himself and a special few people who are most likely the same class or just as rich as him. He still doesn't care for the poor and the suffering. He doesn't say, send Lazarus back to my gate to warn all the poor people or all the suffering people. He says, send them back to warn my brothers. He doesn't say, tell everyone. He simply cares for his own type of people. The only thing at this point that can make the rich man's own suffering worse is to know that his own family is suffering. He's still very selfish and very arrogant. The rich man's brothers won't believe because they're unwilling to believe. It doesn't matter who delivers the message. Their hearts are still committed to disobedience, just like the rich man himself. They've found ways of justifying their lifestyle and their rebelliousness. Now lastly, the rich man wrongly thinks that a miracle is going to guarantee repentance. Verse 29, when Abraham answers him, he says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The rich man answers, No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Then Abraham says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone raises from the dead. So this rich man had access to the same scriptures, the Old Testament, that his brothers do. So it's important that we read and understand the Old Testament uh, to teach us our need to repent. 
when we read the Old Testament, we have our hearts, our rebellious hearts, exposed individually and as a collective race. We can see our own weaknesses. Now, some parts of it are hard to read. Some parts of it are pretty graphic. But mankind's fallen nature and God's nature is revealed in it. Thankfully, and by the grace of God, we have the full revelation of God through His Son, Jesus, and through His Word in the New Testament to us. There's no other place, no other truth, where God shows us our need for repentance than His complete and written Word, all 66 books of it. It's God's Word that gives us warnings, gives us life, points to our hope in Jesus. It's so easy to chase signs and wonders and miracles, flashy things, to just go where we think God's doing amazing things, that he's not doing amazing things in our lives, in our hearts, because he is. What's our faith built on? Is it built on just things, miracles, flashy things that we see on the outside? Or is it the miracle of grace that God's doing in our lives on the inside? Just as the rich man should have listened to Moses and the prophets, his own brothers should listen as well. I like the way Peter puts it in Second Peter uh, chapter 1. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as coming, or as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He goes on to talk about how scripture and prophecies never originated in the human will to just write down what God's doing, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. See, at the point Peter writes that, um, he's talking about the baptism of Jesus, obviously, and they were already following Jesus. They weren't looking for a miracle or looking for a flashy sign to convince them. They were already with him. But miracles happened as a confirmation and a way of strengthening and encouraging their faith, as well as teaching them. Their faith wasn't given to them just by signs and wonders. Just as miracles were for Peter, he saw in God's word a more sure and solid foundation to believe. Now, we all know some people that aren't saved yet, or don't believe, or are very skeptical about who Jesus was, and we think that it'll take a miracle. And it might, a miracle could convince them. But Jesus also did miracles when he was walking on this earth for three years, and not everyone believed then. Miracles happen today in big ways, small ways, and people's hearts still aren't moved to trust Jesus. Now, after Jesus told this parable, it's ironic, the Pharisees still didn't believe Jesus was from God or a prophet after this story that Jesus tells or even after Jesus raises the other Lazarus from the dead later on, or even after the resurrection of Jesus himself. Uh, at this point in the book of Luke, Jesus is on his way to the cross, on his way to Jerusalem to die. So in a way, this parable has an echo of the things to come. And the choices that the Pharisees, as well as us, have to make about Jesus. Jesus. 
Not only did the Pharisees reject Jesus, but they helped plan his death. Their hearts were so hard and they were spiritually blind, thinking that they knew the law the best. So what was the reason the rich man was in hell? It wasn't because of a crime. It wasn't because he neglected and rejected the word of God. He rejected scripture. He knew it, but he didn't do what it said. It was evident in how he treated other people like Lazarus. Now, I love that clip that we played from the Lumo Project about this passage in Luke because it doesn't try to portray heaven or hell. It shows the presence of Jesus with the beggar, wrapping his arms around him. No matter how the beggar is treated, neglected, Jesus is there by his side. No matter how much suffering he was going through, he's not alone. And neither are we when we suffer. Just like Jesus, or just like the rich man and his brothers were to look to Moses and the prophets and to actually live by the word, we have the culmination of that. We have the full revelation of God through Jesus. Jesus' words are always true. He did die and rise from the dead. He gives us a challenge and a warning in this parable. Miracles won't change the hearts of the spiritually dead. Instead, it takes God's grace, working through his word, to bring about repentance and faith. God's word contains all we need in it to repent and be saved. His word is perfect, and if we don't hear it, read it, or care about it, Even the greatest miracles will have no effect if we disregard the truth about the scriptures. The parable today challenges us that we don't need any more evidence or have to have signs and wonders, but to hear what has already been given. And thankfully, we do have miracles in our time, both big and small. The Pharisees loved money, says back in 14 we talked about last week. And Jesus was trying to point them to the Father who loved them and takes care of them. Like the quote that I put on the the bulletin this week, it says, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. Riches in themselves aren't bad things. Wealth isn't bad, but we don't trust in them, and we don't consider them ours to hang on to. Just like Carol read in 1 Timothy, the other readings, it says, uh, Those who are rich in this world are not to be arrogant, Not to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to be generous and willing to share, which lays a firm foundation for the coming age, so that we may take hold of life that is truly life. So the greatest miracle, the greatest provision that we have is from God, is in these pages. It's our book of life. It's our greatest miracle that we can know about him. Are we listening to God as he speaks to us from his word? Are we looking at the kingdom of God? Are we measuring it by earthly standards and by our own currency? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the life that it brings. Sometimes it's hard to talk about money, talk about heaven, talk about hell, Lord. But uh, we thank you that you use stories like this, you use parables like this to point us to your truth, to point us to the life that we can have here on this earth and sharing the, what we've been given and how it can direct others towards you and also strengthen our faith. Just thank you that the King.